0: Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in you can follow planet microcap on twitter at bobby k craft that's b-o-b-b-y-k-k-r-a-f-t and you're listening to episode 159 if you have any questions or comments please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at and when you do get a chance if you like what you hear please rate and review planet microcap on itunes it really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message now save the date The Planet Microcap Showcase virtual is taking place April 20th through 22nd, 2021. The website is live now and you can find all the details on the event at www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and registration is open. So click the register button once you're there and just follow the instructions from, from there. Uh, I have a lot more announcements uh, about the event as we get closer from speakers, presenting companies sponsors, the, the whole the whole shebang so uh, make sure to register so you can get all the updates as they, uh, they are made so uh, with that I'll, I'll see you all there one other announcement that I wanted to let you all know about is that we are conducting a survey titled the 2021 Small Public Company Investor Survey Identifying Investing Trends in Micro and Small Cap Stocks I really appreciate your input on this by taking our brief survey as we want to better serve you. So the link to fill out this survey is pinned on my Twitter page at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. I really would appreciate it and uh, just go in and, and it'll take two minutes. Now, this week from the SNM Podcast Network, we have the following episodes and shows lined up for you. On Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Sway Don, our host welcomes Chris Barring, president and CEO, and Andrew Bass, Director of E-Commerce and Board Member of First Time Design. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is FTDL. Maj and Geo Investing have been tracking first time since 2014 and initiated a long position in the stock on November 3rd, 2020. Since starting Avoiding the Crowd, we wanted to invite management teams to do in-depth interviews on their companies, and First Time Design is the first in that series. In this episode, Maj outlines why First Time Design has been laying out the blueprint to becoming a Tier 1 microcap. You can check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com, and it's available on Maj's website at geoinvesting.com. Also for this episode of the Investors Roundtable, our topic is the aftermath. It's been an eventful couple of weeks in the markets with GameStop and Robinhood Chaos, which we actually discussed in our last episode. So in in this one, we kind of wanted to talk about some of the fallout, what's happened since then. Uh, The CEO of Robinhood has done a number of interviews since then as well. So we got a little bit more information and we want to talk a little more about what
1: what is the aftermath? What happened?
0: And you can find this next episode of the investors roundtable on the SN Network YouTube channel at youtubecom snnwire wire. Now, for this episode of the Planet MicroCap Podcast, I spoke with Marcus Frampton. He is the CIO of the Alaska Permanent Fund and editor, publisher of the MicroCap Letter and OTC stock letter. This was a lot of fun as we dug deep into Marcus's. In microcap investing strategy, how he balances his day-to-day duties with his passion for microcap investing, as well as chatting at length about the upcoming delisting of pink and gray sheet companies as part of the SEC's latest rule and how that affects his strategy investing in dark stocks. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 159 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Marcus Frampton. Mm-hmm. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you for joining me today. My guest right now actually is Batman. Just kidding. But the reason I call him Batman is because by day, he is the CIO of the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, and by night, he is the editor of the Microcap and OTC Stock Letter. And that person is Marcus Frampton. Marcus, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. This is great. It's it's great to have you. I'm, I'm glad you came out of the cave to uh, come join us <laughs> and chat a little bit about uh, microcaps, investing the whole bit. So uh, we do appreciate you taking the time here. So I'd like to start off real quick with your background. I mean, you got I got to know how you got to where you're at today by running the running this fund and doing the newsletter. So let's start there.
1: Yeah, well, it's it- it's really interesting. I listened to a lot of your interviews and a lot of the kind of value investors in microcaps, you know grew up reading Warren Buffett letters and Ben Graham books and whatnot. And I didn't really have that, that um, approach where I you know always wanted to be a value investor and always focused on small caps. I went to I grew up in San Diego, I went to UCLA for college, um, graduated in 2002 and got a job at Lehman so I was in the investment banking analyst program I was an associate there for a couple of years and got this just great like four or five year experience of you know building financial models some pitch books you know just tearing apart M&A opportunities for clients and but at that point I mean we were being Lehman Brothers we were very focused on larger cap markets I think the the one element of my time at Lehman that led to where I am today, and this is also, I always joke, this is the worst career decision I ever made. I was in the paper and forest products investment banking group at Lehman, so, like, just about, like, the least disruptive, you know, least innovative, you know, part of the investment banking area, and if I had, you know, been in Menlo Park instead of LA doing tech banking, I probably would have a completely different career path and probably would have a higher net worth right now, but a lot of the clients we had in the paper and forest products area were doing, you know, acquisitions of sawmills of, you know, pulp mills and things like that. And these are kind of like deep value type investing approaches if you're going to do that intelligently. So, you know, looking at asset values and, you know, buying at sub five times EBITDA and things like that. So I had that experience um, after Lehman. I spent. Um, Five years at a small private equity firm in San Diego Um, and, you know, further was definitely not working on, you know, micro cap type situations there. Um, After that, I worked for a couple of years at a Hellman and Friedman. They're a big private equity firm, a portfolio company of theirs um, doing M&A. So, again, doing larger things. And then in 2012, I moved up to Alaska um initially as a portfolio manager and um and that was my first like experience with microcaps i was doing investing my own account doing stock screens and like the bread and butter screen would be north american companies trading under 5 times ebitda and um i just reran that screen this morning there're 200 companies i think back then in 2012 there were probably 5 or 600 Um, But the most interesting ones were sub 100 million market cap. And I ended up building a pretty big personal position in a company called Callaway's Nursery that at the time just looked really cheap to me. They owned their real estate. It was a a nursery retailer in Texas. And I bought like a three or four percent position in the company, not knowing that uh, Peter Kamen, who's like a legend in this market, had a bigger position And was about to do a proxy uh, contest with the company and get control of the board. So I think Peter kind of bailed me out a little bit because if he wasn't there, I would have been stuck in this kind of micro cap, illiquid retailer, not really knowing what I'm doing. But, you know, that was a successful investment. And it kind of led to me getting, being really passionate about the space because, these opportunities are like too good to be true and Callaway's was certainly that and subsequently i found you know similar situations and they're also you know easier to analyze than like a microsoft or a netflix and so it lends itself to what i'm doing where i've got you know a full-time job but then on the weekends i'll be reading 10ks and building positions in little companies
0: and real quick are you still a shareholder in Callaway's?
1: I'm not. I mean, that was one of the lessons I've learned, or maybe I haven't fully learned. Um, I think a lot of value (laughs) investors sell too early. So I got in at like, I think my blended cost was right. 80 cents. It was like 2012, 2013. And I think I held for three or four years and sold at about 250 a share. And I, you know, it's run as high as seven or eight bucks a share. So I left some money on the table and it's not probably the last time I'll do that.
0: <laughs> All right. So clearly then you you parlayed that success into now being the CIO of the Alaska Permanent Fund. I mean, you got to tell us how you then got there too.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been a great experience being at the permanent fund. I, I've managed, you know, a bunch of different of the asset classes before I was CIO, you know, private equity, venture capital, infrastructure. Um, like a few years ago, I started managing the hedge fund portfolio, which was really interesting. I mean, we're invested in some of the best managers out there. I've certainly learned, you know, from managers like like Elliot on the activist side and, um, and then on the macro side, just having money with, you know, top name firms is really interesting as we see the macro world unfold here.
0: But so don't worry, we'll get to more micro caps talk in a, in a second. But I mean, this is just too. I mean, literally, you were the CIO of the state's uh, fund. Right. <laughs> so I have to ask, I mean, you know, as part of your job, I mean, what's what's some of the most difficult parts of your job on a day to day basis? Is it, you know, looking at micro cap positions and be like, oh, oh right. All
1: right this well, is why I got the newsletter now. Given our size, we're not active in the micro cap space, which is the other reason why it's, it's fits real nicely with that as a personal account area. It could be, I'll, I never buy a stock if our, if the permanent fund has a position in it and we by and large, don't own anything under like 300 million market cap, um, right. just cause it won't move the needle. But I'm um, in terms of the most difficult, you know, the day to day, particularly with the volatility we've had, there's rebalancing that's going on. So if you rewind to March, you know, markets drew down over 30%. And in retrospect, it's was the right move to aggressively buy stocks. And um, that's what we did. But I mean, even as recently as last week, I was listening to a financial podcast from like April, May, and they were saying you shouldn't be rebalancing here. The outlook's too uncertain. So like, you know, we having the conviction to buy in a deep sell-off like that is difficult, I would say. And then the second thing that's really difficult is asset allocation. So We're in the same bucket with these pension funds that you read about that have return targets of seven or 8%. And, um, you know, my view is that large indexes of equities will probably return low single digits over the next 10 years, just given where valuations are. So um, the tendency among state funds is to take more risk in environments with low prospective returns, more private equity, more stocks. I think the sensible thing is to kind of um, is to to avoid doing that to too big of an extent because there'll be better entry points in the future, and we may have a portfolio. A you 60-40 know, portfolio might return four or five percent um, right now, which isn't sufficient for a pension fund. But I think it's getting more aggressive with stocks is is a temptation and one that should be resisted. So that's probably the second hard thing that that
0: we have to do so take us back to that march april time for you i mean where did you develop that conviction of like where you saw what was happening and you knew the move all right we got to be aggressively buying right now you know where where did where did that conviction come
1: from well you, you know to rewind then you know the markets had already been on a nice run so we were coming into 2020 we were underweight as a whole, all our private areas in a, in a big up market, you know, your private real estate, private equity, private credit will be below your target allocation because the fund's growing faster than you thought it would. So you have this question of what do you do with the extra money? And for all of 2019, I had that extra money in cash and we had probably four four or five billion of excess cash on our balance sheet. And I was getting a fair amount of of pressure on why are you holding this much cash, you know, our state relies on the earnings. And, you know, I just felt like in the middle of March, like we had to put the money to work, you know, like, like if you're holding dry powder waiting for a better entry point and the market draws down 30%, you've got to use it, you know, for otherwise, like you should just be fully invested all the time if you're not going to, step into an environment like that. I think the other thing was just living through the financial crisis when when some funds um, did that, did go into equities at the bottom and others de-risked. And I, th- I think just if you're in the business of making money as an institutional investor, but you've got to you know, be active in an environment like that. So, th- I mean, but it wasn't easy at all. And, and as you might expect, there were a lot of different opinions on what we should do at the time
0: sure I mean switching gears to your micro cap you know to to Batman you right. know I mean what <laughs> what were you I mean were you doing the same thing when you were looking at your own personal account and looking at your microcap portfolio
1: um, yeah more or less I mean I think that some people say that diversification is the only free lunch in investing I think rebalancing and diversification are so like in my uh, microcap letter that I put out, I've got a, a model portfolio, which is all the write-ups I've done that are positive, and then dollar for dollar with gold. And I do that in my personal account too. I own a lot of gold and I keep a 50-50 um, equity risk, non-equity risk allocation. And then I also have, you know, like 401k type accounts. So what I usually do is in a market sell-off in my like 401k type accounts, I go all stocks to maintain the 50-50. I didn't do as much micro cap buying as I probably would have liked. Um, And there were some great bargains. But, you know, in that environment where you just don't know what the world looks like, it's a lot more comfortable buying the S&P 500 than the micro caps. But in retrospect, you know, there was, you know, the micro caps did better than the S&P 500 coming out of that. Got it.
0: All right. Well, let's, I'm going to take another couple steps back so that we can even take a, a nice giant leap forward, you know? So as you, as you know, on the, you listen to the show, so you know, we talk about philosophy and strategy. So, I mean, you know, let's focus in on your microcap strategy. What, what would you say it is, you know, what, what type of microcap value investor would you say you are, especially when you're looking at a potential new
1: investment? Yeah. I mean, I think the, 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 the first important thing to do is to invest in things that you understand. And I think most people can get their arms around that idea. But if you, if you look at the ideas that I write up and I have in my portfolio, they tend to be um, you know, traditional businesses. Um, not a lot of tech, unless it's a, a base business that you understand with some upside on a tech opportunity. So um, one stock I wrote up and I don't own it anymore Full disclosure, uh, mechanical technology is a company ticker MKTY as an aerospace business as the base business and got into Bitcoin mining of all things. And, and you know, so I wrote that up in June at 75 cents a share. And at that price, it was, you know, net cash trading at six or seven times EBITDA on the base business and a business you can understand and then there's this like amorphous uh cryptocurrency upside so but number one like i said is at least a base business that you can understand and then i would say number two you know trading at a discount to what a reasonable private market purchaser or valuer would buy the business at such that if it converges to that value you make you can double your money is kind of I don't get involved in too many situations where like the upside's like 20%. Like I want to see a possibility of a double and then just, you know, that some of them you'll hold a while and it'll take four years to get there. Others, you know, Peter came and will show up and buy a position and we will get there next week.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> so those are
1: the two main things I look at. And then I try to avoid management that's kind of hostile to the shareholders and those do come up from time to time so I make some effort to evaluate through shareholder communications or maybe even picking up the phone and calling them to see like what their posture is towards shareholders gotcha I
0: mean would you say you you tend to be more long-term focused versus kind of short-term opportunities or what where, where's your stance on that
1: I would definitely say long term like I buy stocks thinking I'm gonna hold it for five years but it's amazing how often something happens where you get out in a year either because you didn't you saw something you didn't like or it came to your price target. So like I don't I probably of the stocks I own today, probably only two or three I owned five years ago, but yet I buy stocks thinking I'm gonna hold them for five years. Gotcha.
0: All right. So then all right, you mentioned a few things that you look for when you're I would say that that would be after you probably found it, right? It's like okay, all right. Now let me. These are my couple checks just to make sure. So after you, all three of those things, maybe uh, you checked all the boxes. I guess you'd say. You know, how do you then? Is that when you size into the position, or do you do you still have some other checks that you do before you you open a position in that? In that. Yeah, state? I
1: mean, every investor has a different approach, and and there are investors in this market that have five positions, and investors that have you know, a hundred positions, I'm somewhere in between. I mean, there's idea generation. So I mentioned like the stock screen. So like my bread and butter is under five times EBITDA stock screen. I also like, um, one that I look at that I don't know how common it is, is um, host bankruptcy equity screen. Like I've got it set up on my screener where I can see those and they're not that common. Like in the last year, there's been 15 but they can often be really juicy, you know? And, those, and so that, that, that's an area I look. And then I look at, you know, someone like Peter Kamen, like his 13D filings. So I'll see something that I think is interesting. I'll, you know, read the, the filings, look at the company and maybe buy a small position off of that. And then it's like legging in as, you know, you get more conviction. Like as you read more filings, you understand the competitors, maybe you talk to management. Um, so, like, an initial position could be a tenth of what the ultimate position is.
0: Got it. What's been? The, I gotta ask at this point. I mean, what would you say has been the most fun in microcap investing story that you've that you've been a part of thus far? Where you know, fun. can I'm gonna leave that up to you. You know, in terms right. of lessons learned, just just you know, I'd, I'd love to hear a story on like something that you were like, you know, this is.
1: I gotta tell this one right now. You know, I'm on Bobby's show. Let let's tell this one. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't have any horror stories and that's probably like, uh, uh, I'm sure one will come, you know, and maybe it'll come when the cycle finally turns. And, and um, so most of my stories have been positive. Um, you know, that first Callaway's one is one, but I won't repeat it. Um, I got involved in a company called Scientific Industries and I'm still a shareholder. I'm on the board now, so I won't get too into it. But it was kind of what I just described, like it's screen cheap. It had a good base business. I read the filings. I bought a little position. They're based in um, just outside of New York and Long Island. I get there for work now and then. And I just stopped by one day and um, I had emailed the CEO and she was very, she was very welcoming and showed me around. And, and, you know, that was 2013, 2014. And now I've been in the stock for, you know, eight years. So it it, uh, it was a great experience. You just get to like investing in bigger companies, you don't get this kind of like interaction with executives and stuff and other shareholders too. So I think that, that probably one of the things that I learned early, which was a great learning and people listening to this should do as well is to like actually show up to the annual meetings because there'll be like two or three shareholders there and you'll get to know them and hear why they're in the stock and you get them to meet management. So um, I think just the interaction is like the, the greatest part. I don't have some crazy story though. I wish I, I did at some point. I will, I'm sure. Hey i probably so won't. Crazy hey, stories hey, usually aren't good in investing.
0: <laughs> hey man, you're still young in your career, all right? There's, we got time, you know, but hopefully right, it's crazy right. on the good. It'll be crazy on the good side. That's when you're like, you're going to call me up, Bob. Like I got to come back on. I got you right. on this one. It would be like an hour just on this one story, but um, right. but you bring up another rabbit hole that we should probably go down because I, I management when we're talking microcaps, um, bar none, I, I think most of us would argue probably the most important part. And what's amazing about it is, especially in microcaps, you have access to them. You you heard me on that interview the other day, you know, like I, I right. that's what's amazing about microcaps is you have access to them, and they want to hear from you. They want to hear your questions. They want to hear what you think of their company. I mean they'll hear what you have to say about improvements. Uh, they probably will listen to you more so than maybe some other retail but, but at the end of the day they do want to talk to you and understand where you know where you're coming from and why you're invested and what you want to see. So for you when you've been at, you've been in the markets now for a long time, you've looked at microcaps, what are some of the things that you look for when you're evaluating management?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean it is inherently subjective and qualitative because there's not something like, you know, if you're, if you're hiring analysts and you work in an investment bank, like they have to have a college degree, a certain GPA, and it's not the case with management. It's a a qualitative thing. Um, And I try to assess whether they are, and this is going to be subjective, but whether they're a promoter or a business person. And, um, and it's kind of like the way they talk about their business. And, if they can acknowledge what the risks are, like any business has risks. So it, you know, you ask any CEO, what keeps them up at night, if you get a sales pitch about the upside and stuff, you know, that's not as good of an answer as these are, you know, some competing products that are out there that I'm keeping an eye on, but we think we're better, you know, like, so it is the soft stuff. I think the way um, skin in the game is really important. So, Most of the companies I've invested in management owns at least five or 10%. I think that, that maintaining appropriate overhead expense is really important. Um, And, you know, you can benchmark these things, um, but, you know, like certain comp, most of these companies in the micro cap or over the counter area don't need a fancy office in Manhattan. Like, the company I just mentioned is in Long Island in a very practical lo- location. So there are these little, you know, elements that you pick up on. But like I'm looking for conservatism and, you know, industry experience and skin in the game. Got it. Hey, you know,
0: I, I have kind of an out there question for you. And I, you, listen, you're a microcap guy, so we can we can go there. OK. You know, have you? All right. So have you ever come across a company where you have management where like, collectively, everyone's like, we love this person. And yet you, you're you like, you're trying to understand it. And it's not that you don't see what they're seeing, but at the same time, you're like, is that a risk that everyone just loves this manager? Like, is this something I should think more deeply about? I don't know if you've ever- I haven't. I mean,
1: one of the things I probably should do more of that I've heard other investors talk about is like, talking to employees at different levels of the organization i was um mm. just listening to jeff right. gannon talk about investing in movie theaters and going in and evaluating the general managers of locations and stuff i haven't done that. i think i love those guys yeah, right i, I mean love those guys they, 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 that's that's, yeah. that's
0: so good i love i, I think they <laughs> they get an a
1: plus on like the scuttlebutt and like the you know talking to different people and stuff and both i'm yeah. yet to not go in through the front door and, you know, talk to the CEO, CFO. Um, I've seen like, you know, strange board dynamics, you know, like there, a lot of these, I think there was kind of like a boom in IPOs of really small companies, like in the sixties and seventies. And a number of these go back to then to then. And you'll, you know, you'll see um, a board that's been in place for the last 15 or 20 years or an executive team that just needs like refreshing to some extent, like um uh, new ideas um fresh looks at the business and i think that like i'll invest in those situations but i won't invest if i get like a bad feeling about you know the integrity of management or something like that fair enough
0: i mean you know that that actually leads to another question because you know now you're in a position where you're actually a a board member on a a public microcap company i mean how would you say that experience has changed your perspective as an investor or, or has it?
1: I mean, it hasn't totally changed it. I mean, I I think that I can interpret questions and answers. Like when you go to these annual meetings, you can ask questions of the directors. You do have to be somewhat circumspect at times when you're a director and you inevitably know more about the budgets and the new products and things like that. And and so like i used to get frustrated if you like ask a question and you get kind of like not an entirely clear answer and i think that's why so i think i've come to understand that a little bit more through this experience
0: um, you, i was gonna say you probably realize like oh man i was that guy asking all oh those yeah annoying right, questions. Exactly. like i i would ask those same questions to every board of directors at all the agms i went through now i'm getting them like I should probably call them and apologize. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, That's that too funny. That's too funny. So I mean, w- was there uh, just to, my final question on that front? I mean, was there anything I guess you'd say that you've learned a- as an investor now when you go to the AGM for you're not a board of director and you're like, OK, I'm going to ask this question a little differently because I hate how I get those and how I used to ask them. So now are there certain ways that you ask those questions where like, OK, I know I can get more out of them because of this experience that I've, that I'm on. That
1: yeah. I'm on. I focus more like on body language and, you know, I think you can, investors can pick up a lot. That's not explicitly said, you know, like demeanor of, of, of an executive as they talk about the outlook, you know, I think people give away a lot, you know, particularly at smaller companies where things aren't quite as rehearsed as, you know, at the Microsoft earnings call, I think things are pretty rehearsed, but if you, you know, show up to a, Eight million market cap companies annual meeting. You pick up a lot that's not explicitly said. I believe. Gotcha.
0: All right, so I want to go to another topic that we were talking about offline because uh, I know that you have some exposure to dark stocks. You know, you you happen to invest in in a few of these and you know i'd love to i mean i'd love to get your, your strategy behind that and like what you what you kind of look for but at the same time well let, let's do that first and then we'll get to the the other thing that we'll 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 talk about a little bit more so what what's your strategy behind uh evaluating potential uh, dark stock or for those who don't know dark stock it's a company that's not fully reporting but has a, a a listing on OTC
1: right well everyone's looking for attractive value in the world today because there's it's hard to find, you know, the, the S and P 500 trades at valuations that have been seen since 99 or 1929 on the Schiller PE. And it's, and it's flowed down a little bit into micro caps. So like I mentioned, the stock screens that I run have fewer names on them than they did 10 years ago. Like I still can find things. um, But and and including the bankruptcy screen, like in spite of COVID, like bankruptcy filing for down this year because of all the stimulus and lending activity. So there's fewer good ideas. Um, and you know, I found the like first you have to define dark stocks because they're like Callaways, for example, posts its financials on its website. Anyone can find it. Um, I would say of companies that post financials on their website probably about half the numbers find their way into like Capital IQ, which is the data behind Yahoo Finance and probably half don't show up. Um, So, you know, like that's like quasi dark. There's really no companies in my experience that are dark in as much as if you're a shareholder, you can't get financials. You know, so every company I've ever invested in, even ones that aren't that friendly to shareholders will give you their financials. The SEC has a concern that um, that companies aren't making information public and there's stock trading and we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, I got into this area, it, it, like I said, just looking for value. And over the years, I started following different newsletters. So there's one oddball stocks I followed, you know, your materials and other places and, and like these dark stocks pop up. And it's not surprising that a lot of the best values are in stocks that don't show up in the capital IQ data. You know, like if you're looking for, you know, net net stocks, stocks that trade at a discount to networking capital, there aren't too many in the public reporting area, you know, because they kind of get screened out now. People know what to screen for. So that's what led me to it. And, and the names that I've gotten into have been as a result of just knowing people in the The industry and, you know, like one of the most famous ones, I don't own a position in this, I used to, is J.G. Boswell is is an agricultural company out of California. There's a lot of information about them. There's a whole book written about them called King of California, and they are one of the top five owners of farmland in the U.S. So this is not a tiny company. Another is that I am a shareholder of now is Party Resources. And I came across Party actually because I have a friend who's a financial advisor who one of their clients is a descendant of the founding family. And he said, hey, can you look at this? And I looked at it and I saw his trading over the counter and it's a great value in my opinion. So the dark ones you can't screen for. You just kind of like come across them through talking to people or other means. Um, but they can represent like the best value out there in my opinion.
0: All right, so that gets us to you know one of one of the main topics I wanted to talk with you about today, and and that's the new rule that the SEC came out with that um, coming up. I think it, I think it's September this year, right?
1: September, yeah, October this year, I don't the exact where dude, their final ruling was last October, I think, and I think there was a nine month you know right. grace period. So I I, it, I think maybe as early as July it'll come into effect.
0: Right, maybe sooner. So. Basically, the ruling is that unless that SEC is basically going to delist all of these either dark or quasi-dark or basically companies that are listed on the, on the pinks or, or the gray sheets on OTC markets. And as, as someone, you know, you that, that, that invests in this space, you know, I've, I've done a couple of interviews with Dan Shum. Uh, talking about this ruling and what this means for him as, a, as an individual investor that plays in this space. You know, there's been a numerous letters sent from investors like yourself that play in the space as well, expressing their, their dismay. So I'd love to get your, your perspective, because I know you also were one of these people that submitted a letter. So what, what's your perspective on this?
1: Well, it was it was pretty alarming, um, you know, as a owner of these stocks to learn that they'll be delisted. And and actually, by delisted, I think what they're technically saying is that brokerage firms can't quote electronic bid asks in these names. So, you know, all these names that I own are in, you know, traditional online brokerage accounts, Schwab, ETrade, etc. et cetera. And you can trade them and they trade kind of like bonds, which is one of the things I like about it is there's a bid ask. So um, there's a little bit less liquidity if you want to get out. But if you have some patience, you can be the high bid and and have kind of a ball bid and get in and make money, being on the bid and the ask. So that's how I've traded these. Um, it appears, based on this ruling, that you won't be able to do that anymore in a traditional brokerage account um, when it goes into effect. Um, so that's really alarming to me. I, I think about a buying new positions, like something I love to do. I may it's going to be complicated at a minimum to figure out how to do that, and then existing positions. Will be less accessible to other investors. So I would expect that that their values will go down. You know, it, like the more hoops you have to jump through to buy a stock, you know, probably the value goes down or the liquidity dries up. In some respects, I like that because part of what makes this a great value opportunity is its complexity and that everyone in the world isn't willing to go figure out JG Boswell or party resources, but I am, you know, so, so there's part of me that embraces this type of thing, but it's just so unknown to me. Like it's been explained to me that when this goes into effect, that these names will trade on what's known as the gray market, which is not an electronic bid ask um, market. It's conducted through phones with brokers and brokers make a market, but I've never traded in this market. So I don't know how it's gonna work. Like I, you know, and I'm looking forward to that, but I'm concerned about my existing positions. Um, so it's definitely concerning. There's been a development um, with, where OTC markets will have an expert market, which may help, but we don't really know what it'll look like.
0: That's actually pretty interesting. I
1: haven't heard that yet, but Oh yeah, they- uh, I, would, I would love to it her, it hear was more about in that. in the original uh, SEC ruling from last fall that they would be open to considering an expert market where the, the notion is that accredited investors would be kind of um, pre-qualified. And so, and I kind of like that. I mean, it'll narrow the number of people that will be in this market. It'll probably be less efficient. So, it'll, so it has some of the same issues, but at least I understand how I might be able to transact. OTC Markets uh, last month came out with their um, proposal for the expert market, and they submitted it to the SEC as as a proposed exemption to this rule. And it's like, you know, I read it and these things tend to be a little difficult to get through a lot of like legal jargon. And it's really not clear to me what this expert market is going to look like. And, and I think issuers may have to have a relationship with OTC markets. They have to confirm to OTC markets that they're a legitimate operating business. Those elements are clear to me. There's others that aren't clear to me. Um, And so it's, I don't believe that, I think it'll, there'll be a sub-segment of delisted or deregistered companies that will end up here, but it won't be all. And it's just like, when I talk about individual names, it's just not clear to me which will go there, which won't. So that uncertainty is concerning to me, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out.
0: Yeah, because part of me is thinking like, all right, so there's two ways in which these, three ways that the companies could go, right? On one hand, they could then you know, engage OTC, go on the QB or QX, do that. They could now go on this new expert gray market, which probably won't cost them anything. Or uh, the other thing that won't cost them anything is like, screw it, let's just, let's just be private. Like who cares? Let's just be private. You know, I've just, I just, I guess, I mean, right now there's, I, I had to look this stuff. There's 11,838 securities listed on OTC markets. So I'm You're just amazing. curious, like what-
1: yeah. I mean, how, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, like, right? No, it's it is, but you, now you have to think to yourself, like, what will that oh, new yeah. number be? No, totally, right? You know, like, what what what's going to happen now? Because
1: the estimate I, mean, that, that's what I, I, I saw. saw, so it's a, it's remarkable because the, I think the number of like exchange traded public companies now is under five thousand, so it's like four thousand something, but they still have the Wilshire five thousand because that was the original name, and people are bemoaning. At least until the SPAC boom, how there are fewer and fewer public companies. You know, p- companies like Uber and WeWork are waiting longer to go public. And you know, when Amazon went public, it was at an earlier stage. And so the public markets are missing this like growth entrepreneur stage. You know, because IPOs have been delayed. But then in OTC markets, there's ten thousand stocks. But I saw the stat, uh, and actually it was in the the SEC's analysis of the rule that seven thousand of the ten or eleven thousand. OTC stocks are dark and something like 3000 have current financials uploaded on OTC markets. So I, you know, I own probably 10 or 11 dark stocks and only one party resources has announced that it'll start complying and providing public financials. The other nine or 10 are just, it's unclear at this point, what they're going to do. They'll either be on the expert market or they may just not want to be public, which would be a difficult outcome.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a scary. It's a really I don't know if it's scary. It's just it's one of those things where like every time I think about this new rule, just from a supply perspective, when you see the demand, when you see that there's a lot more, millions more investors that are act active participants in the stock market, you know now you're thinking to yourself, okay, but now here's a new rule to take away millions or thousands but at the same but at the same time i mean i get the, i get where they're coming from oh, you know totally. like it's not like all these are yeah it's not like all these yeah, are like the, I,
1: I have a i mean i work for a, a government agency and our our mission is in the public good to help our stakeholders it's really protect investors the protect in the consumers. Same boat. i mean they're here to protect yeah. the investing public and they have a point like the, there's a disproportionate amount of fraud and pump and dumps and things like that in the OTC market. I mean, there's 11,000 stocks. I probably own 50 or 60 right now. So we've I've screened through it, but the average person might not screen through that. I mean, I think that I mean, while I continue griping exactly about right. the SEC, there is a rule, that there's an SEC rule where if you have fewer than 300 shareholders of record, you can, and you're an SEC filer of financials. So there are companies that are SEC filers. And then if you're not an SEC filer, you can post financials on your website or send them to your shareholders. Most OTC stocks are not SEC filers. Um, And you can stop being an SEC filer if you have fewer than 300 shareholders of record. And there's an argument that you save some money and expense. I think the SEC should hold a firmer line on not letting companies stop filing with them. But that's a esoteric legal point, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 a tough question because especially, you know, a lot of these companies, at least probably the higher quality dark socks. I mean, a lot of them are, you know, they've been around for yeah. years, you know, uh, uh, probably most likely family owned businesses. And, you know, they happen to have a listing. You yeah, know, yeah. a lot of them, I think, to, I mean, you you know, I don't
1: really know how they all ended up public, but a lot of them are just at some point had enough shareholders. They like paid vendors through stock, people inherited it, family owned businesses. And next thing they knew they had 500 shareholders and it's trading over the counter. <laughs> but a lot of them are family businesses, some of the best ones.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's tough because they, I mean, you would think that, you know, uh, the SEC probably had to do like a, a risk, you know, like, okay. We know that there's a lot of Marcus Framptons out there. <laughs> all right. But we also know there's a lot of Jimmy Johns out there that might, you know, could easily be fooled by some crap, you know. So it 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 was a t- it's a tough decision. I mean, it's I I would I'm I'm sure you and others that that are like you yeah I mean have that I know I don't like it's it. Like you get just it. because
1: I don't like it doesn't mean it's not in the public interest. I mean, I wish it didn't happen, but uh, they clearly. You know, made that judgment, and if they have a good expert market where it's accredited investors and they can get mostly stocks there, then that's a pretty good outcome um, if they get that right. I
0: mean, do do you look outside the U.S. at all? I mean, do you look at like TSX-listed venture, TSX-listed companies, or ASX? You know, I've started you know,
1: looking more. Yeah, I mean, I I have I own one Australian stock of, um, and I own one Canadian stock right now. That um, yeah that i purchased their venture
0: markets are incredible
1: i know it's I mean, great i mean somehow they've solved it where there's a thriving market for you know companies with 20 million market caps and like the stock i'm involved with in australia i mean they did a seven million dollar market cap 18, or seven million dollar ipo 18 months ago you'd never see that in the u.s like you know a company of that size doing an ipo so i you know i I don't know what they're doing right that we're not doing right, but I'm starting to focus more on Canada and Australia for those reasons. Yeah. I
0: mean, I, man, how how much, if there, was some, if there was an infrastructure like that in the U.S., I mean, it would kill the game. Amazing. Yeah. It would be amazing. There's so many investors here. The demand is there. Yeah, People want these names. It's just, it's, it, I'm, right. I'm sure it'll get yeah. sorted out eventually. Yeah, I mean, you know? an
1: OTC Markets has set up good, market infrastructure, I guess part of it is that we have such a thriving venture capital community here, but I'm surprised that there aren't more, you know, small companies going public just onto OTCQB or, you know, listing their stock there. Um,
0: I mean, who knows this, this, this ruling by the SEC, that could be the first step, you know, where it's like, where, because maybe because there's 7,000, you know, uh, pink. Yeah. Well, you raise a good point. I like
1: like the benefit that could come of this is the OTC markets in the U S have a reputation of kind of being the wild west unregulated. And it's because of what I just described is that most of these companies are not SEC filers. Maybe they put their financials on the website. so the SEC is kind of cleaning, like the stocks that remain and comply with their new rule I think will be a more investor friendly market. The only bummer is that there's thousands of stocks that are not gonna comply. But for this market, it, it, you might be right, this OTC market in the US after this ruling may look a lot like Canada or Australia. and may be a huge yeah. positive.
0: Yeah, like the short term's gonna suck because everyone's be like, ah, oh, there's thousands less now, but long-term that totally. might lead to 10,000 or 20, or way more. And way more current private companies that are like, oh, OTC is now, you know, there's less of that crap that was there because of the, you know, where they were situated.
1: There's a huge opportunity to clean up OTC markets in the US. And like, I'd love to see like an OTCQB index fund or something, because I think by and large, the OTC stocks and the nano cap stocks are better valuations than you know, the Russell 3000 or 2000, but there's no passive product. And maybe that's something that will come out in a year or two after this. Yep.
0: All right. I think, I think we covered that pretty good. I, did we miss anything in, in, in terms of that? rule?
1: <laughs> I think those are the key points. I mean, we'll have to check back in six months and see how things look because there's a lot of uncertainty. I do one last point. I do think people are maybe in the names that won't comply with the rule. I don't, I haven't, I've been surprised I haven't seen price moves. So like on these names I mentioned, like, you know, like a stock like JG Boswell is probably going to the gray market. I mean, I don't want to speculate. I'm not a shareholder anymore, but I, you know, stocks like that or there'll be many that go to the gray market have not really traded off at all. And then you have a, you know, RDE I mentioned has announced it will comply. I mean, the stock didn't move when it did that. So I, I think that, maybe investors aren't in these stocks, like aren't handicapping appropriately how bad this could end up, but maybe I'm wrong and and it won't, it won't be that bad, but I've definitely curtailed my new buying of stocks where it's not clear that they'll comply.
0: I mean, what are you, what are you doing, you know, with, with these positions? I mean, are you more likely going to sell, like, especially if you get a good feeling, okay, they're not going to Make the, you know they're not going to go QB or QX, you know, because because then what? Especially if they go private, like now you own shares of private company. Like now what? Cool. So <laughs> you know?
1: there's there's two or three stocks that I'm in that that would be considered dark stocks where I talk to management from time to time. After the rule came out, almost all of them were completely unaware of it. And it's one of the things I love about these companies is that, like these executives are busy running their business. You yeah, know, they don't care. And and so I was like, look at what just happened and. And I think now we're three or four months later, most of the management teams are now aware of this. And so I think I'll probably ask in the next month or two, the management of each company I own. And if I don't get an affirmative, we're going to comply with this, I'm going to strongly consider exiting the position because the, the stocks haven't moved, like I said, so you can get out and then I'll sit in cash and, Maybe I can buy it cheap on the expert market, but I, you know, as we get closer to the summer, I'm not. I'm probably going to be looking to exit some of these, and I think people listening to this should strongly consider that if if they have a stock that's not going to be listed anymore. For sure, for sure.
0: You know, it's funny. Is like I bet you know some of these companies, you know, these thousands of companies. Sometimes you'd like. What's the contact information? Oh yeah, for some of the, you know, you know, like you, even for OTC, I'm sure, like you know, this company's been listed here for years. They're on the gray. Market. Oh yeah, none of us know. None of us. I got an info email. Like, how am I supposed to tell the CEO? Right. You know, so you got you got to bank on investors like you that are in these stocks. Like, hey, you should probably check this
1: out. And yeah, see it's hard on. to get a hold of all, all of them. <laughs> it's worth doing if you can do it. That's for sure.
0: All right, dude. So uh, you know. I, I, that, that was a good bow tie i think on, on sure. that uh, on that topic so uh another question i have for you you know and and this goes back to now your day-to-day job yeah. you know what would you say is some of the things that you experience as a result of being the cio of the state fund sure. that that you're able to incorporate into your 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 batman activities you know is there is there anything in particular that you're able to use that that's been very helpful for you um,
1: they are very different worlds. I mean, you know, like at the permanent fund, like I said, we're not really active in stocks under a couple hundred million market caps. Right. So it's pretty distinct. I mean, I think that, that being exposed to, you know, some of the macro hedge funds we're in and some of the advisors we talked to and whatnot, I think I probably follow just like the macro markets closer than someone who's, you know, like you mentioned Dan Sham earlier, I think he's an engineer and then he does, you know, so I, I think that, and I don't know if that's helped my uh, investing in micro caps that I think about markets instead of engineering during the day. And then on the weekends, look at this, but, you know, I'm pretty, this probably wouldn't surprise you or people listening to this. Like, I'm pretty concerned about the deficits and the money supply growth. And I think I can probably, I'm more intimately familiar with some of the These concepts, and that's led me to want to run a very balanced portfolio um, in my personal account. So I stay. I always want to have dry powder to buy dips, you know. And and so I'm, you know, I'm concerned about where we are in the cycle. I'm concerned about you know what the next decade may look like in macro economies. And but you know that's not anything that anyone who doesn't read the Wall Street Journal isn't picking up on.
0: Hey man, there's a subscription to that, all right? So not a lot of people right. are reading the Wall Street Journal, you know. I don't know. Right. <laughs> uh, but I, well, let's. I, all right, let me ask you. I'll ask you only one macro question, you know. So I mean, uh it's going to be the one that I, I is probably asked of you all the time, you know. But I, you know, I just did a, a, an episode on the Investors Roundtable talking about you know looking ahead, you know what things to kind of look out for, and we talked about you know various uh, the ideas of, of different black swan events that maybe could happen out there and kind of talk some of that stuff through but love to get your opinion on it as someone you know you're you're very actively looking at the macro markets you know because you need to assess that when you're look, when you're managing the state's funds you know so what are some of the things that you see coming up that concern you that could lead to some things happening i'm not asking you to be an oracle but but you know just just in your opinion what you've seen
1: well i i think the that a big shift just in the last month that everyone's still figuring out is what it means to have, you know, one party um controlling the White House, the Senate and the and the House. So, you know, you you read about $15 minimum wage and I don't I'm thinking about what stocks in my portfolio um employ a lot of people making the minimum wage. You know, I have one that's actually a dark stock. It's called American Restaurant Partners. It's uh, Pizza Hut franchisee. And I'm like, I don't have an answer yet, but like, I don't think that's good for the economics of Pizza Hut franchisees, regardless of whether it's good socially or good economic policy. So, you know, I think everyone has to be sifting through like, what does this mean uh, in terms of not just $15 minimum wage, just in terms of like another stock I own is Optech Systems, is a defense company. Um, they make, uh, Periscopes for tanks, and their revenue you can pretty much model it out on De- Department of Defense budgets. And so, you know, when when President Biden was running, he um, affirmed that he was not planning to cut defense spending. But I do think defense spending is a lower priority um, than other, you know, programs. So I have two names there in the portfolio that might not be great, you know, Democrat control stocks to own. And I don't say any of that to comment, I'm pretty apolitical to comment on whether that's good policy or not. It's just I'm not sure defense stocks or pizza franchisees will be the place to be for the next year. Um, And then I just I do think that any investor, whether it's micro cap, or large cap has to be aware of the, you know, the, the monetary environment we're in that there, there, you could have a weak dollar here in the next few years and you could have inflation. And so I like, I'm looking at more stocks that have, you know, own real estate um, and I'm in my personal account owning gold, which probably reflects I was born before 1980. If I was born after 1980, I'd own Bitcoin. I was just going to joke that. (laughs) I was just going to throw
0: that joke at you.
1: (laughs) I mean, I have no opinion on Bitcoin. I used to say that I thought it was the next tulip bulb, but I get, you People get angry at me if I say that. And I actually don't have an opinion. I actually understand that it could get traction and be a store of value. And I'll wait for that to happen and to get some price stability before I start buying it. Very good. Very good.
0: All right. Well, my, my final question before I get to my other final question, I have to ask, how'd you get to ask Alaska? Um, What, what led, what led you there?
1: Uh, Well, I got a job through a LinkedIn job post. So I think I'm the only person I'm aware of that's gotten like a real job through LinkedIn. You know, so I was working at this company, LPL Financial, um, in San Diego. And I was just on LinkedIn. I saw this job, uh, private equity portfolio manager, Alaska, and I clicked on it. Next thing I knew, I was talking to someone on the phone. And next thing I knew, I was on an airplane to Juno to interview. I mean, and Alaska is an amazing place. So it's it's been the best, one of the best decisions I've made in my life. So I'm happy I did it. That's very cool.
0: Yeah, you know, I went to UCSD, so I oh, okay. I, I know La Jolla, that whole that whole area. You surf Black's Beach all the time. Yeah, I miss yeah, San Diego.
1: A I miss Alaska.
0: I, I, I'm sure right now, like you, you, in these months, you're like, oh yeah, yeah San, I was like a San
1: decade Canada's early Canada. on the like move to a rural place. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> for sure all right man well to close out the interview today you know i'd love to ask you know what advice then do you have for new investors what like microcap or otherwise that are looking at the stock market right now
1: yeah well I, you know when i was in college i graduated college in 2002 so i was like a sophomore in the first dot-com bubble and i definitely got burned and bought you know stupid stocks so i think that i, I don't I think that people just getting their feet wet in the market today, like I'd love to hand them like Ben Graham security analysis and say, read this. But I, I do think that they have to, you know, buy some crazy SPAC and lose half their money to learn. No, I need to look at valuations. But maybe I'd encourage them just to just go trade whatever they want. And then when they lose money, hand them Ben Graham security analysis for a new approach. Very good.
0: All right, man. Well, with that, where can everybody go and find more information about you? Follow you're. On, I think you're on Twitter, yeah. right? I think you just. I think you might. Yeah, yeah. I'm on Twitter. Okay, just so I follow you on Twitter. My first
1: name, last name, and then I've got the newsletter that you mentioned. It's uh, www.microcapletter.com. And people can subscribe. there. Very cool. It's free.
0: And sorry, I got, I got, I got okay. one last question for our, for, for those listening, and you know, uh, born, uh, you know, pre 80s, right? Is a uh, I mean, are you related to? to not Peter? related
1: to Peter. I mean, every year that goes not by, I get to Peter. asked that okay. question about ten percent less. So it's like when I was in middle <laughs> school, like every teacher wanted to know if I was related to Peter Frampton. But you're the you're the first of 2021 to ask me that. But uh, I get it less. Oh, than this, 10% is <laughs> this is big.
0: This this is huge, man. This is huge. sorry. Every time I think of Peter Frampton, it there's a great. There, uh, I don't know if you're, do you do. Not only is he great, but there's a Mitch Hedberg. Uh, uh, he did a bit on it like in the early I guess I guess it was like in 99 or something like that where he was talking about I was doing a movie with Peter Frampton yeah. and, and everyone's like wow you're gonna be doing this movie with Peter and he's he was saying more or less like what the fuck is Peter Frampton man like he's like standing right next to him he's like talking right. to him and all this stuff like yeah man talking about all this and the next thing and the next thing you know he's just like I don't know who the hell I, I've been just talking to him for 20 minutes I have no idea who no. this guy is.
1: Frampton comes alive one of the great albums. Oh yeah, that's for sure. I wish I
0: was. But uh, hey, we we. Hey. <laughs> you know what? I get it all the time. That's oh yeah,
1: I, I to the, I, the first time the I owner, saw your name, I thought you owned you. the Patriots. And... It, it it's funny. I
0: was thinking, I was like, when when I did the interview on Fox, I was asking myself, I was like, do I go as Robert Kraft or Bobby Kraft? And you know, like which which one? Which one do we go? I mean, I introduced myself as Robert Kraft every, but everybody knows me as Bobby. <laughs> you know, when we're just hanging out and stuff. But uh, so. Either way, but uh, Marcus, with that man, we're there, dude. All right, but cool. uh, I, I really thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a lot of fun, and I, you'll be back on soon. I, I can already. I hope
1: so. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Talk to you All soon. Right.
0: podcast.